three. On the day that Travis left to go hunting, Duncan found Malcolm near the machine shed cutting wood. He had felled one of the last large elm trees, which had been standing close to the farm buildings. It was a chill, raw, sunless day, gray skies threatening snow, but there had been no snow. The frost-lane ground was strewn with giant branches, and Malcolm was making his way among them with a chainsaw cutting chunks, some so large as to need the hydraulic splitter which was standing nearby. When the chainsaw sputtered, Duncan shouted to Malcolm, Ain't nothing wrong with me. Malcolm suppressed a mischievous urge to shout back in the same tone, Didn't say there was. But Duncan's venturing further than the milk house on an almost wintry day was uppermost in Malcolm's mind. Dad could have handled every one of those chunks with an axe, Duncan said, looking disdainfully at the wood splitter. You use that thing? he scolded. Once in a while, Malcolm said good-naturedly, saves a great deal of work. What's the good of always inventing ways to save work? Duncan wanted to know. To argue with Duncan was purposeless. Guess I'll need some more fuel, Malcolm said, then went into the machine shed where the iron stove warmed one corner. Duncan stood close to the stove, shivering. Them soldiers at Vichy, he said. Mostly Americans, always making out that they was sick. They was no sicker than I am. You see, he began and continued simultaneously, sitting down on one of the wood chunks which served as a seat. I was in the hospital corps and I was a sergeant. I could see right through them Americans. Dumb. Couldn't write their own names. At each sentence, he worked himself to a higher pitch of excitation. They'd have me signing for him. And I was a Canadian and a sergeant. Did that ever get him? Malcolm was kneeling, adjusting the chain of the saw, hearing what Duncan said, knowing, without looking up from his work, the elfish expression on Duncan's face. She could read and write. Maybe better than I could. The words descended upon Malcolm slowly, softly. He looked up, stirred by Duncan's tones. By the near tenderness in his usually rasping voice. She was a nurse, Duncan explained hastily. He paused, then asked sharply, Did you ever have a girl? Well, sort of, Malcolm said with some reticence. Mother was always afraid something would happen to one of us. Fall off a wagon or out of a tree or get killed in the war, Duncan said, squinting as if she stood in substance before him, and he could not quite believe the limitless bounds of her affection and compassion. We both did things, he confessed, we shouldn't have done. So there was no more of it. He followed Malcolm then, out into the frigid grey of morning. The two men returned to the location of the fallen tree. Duncan stayed only a moment. It was as if he had purposely approached the place again to make one parting, solemn pronouncement. Mother, he said, surveying the sawed chunks and the scattered debris, liked the color of elms in the fall better than maples or oak or anything. Chilled and bitten by the cold wind, 
he shuffled across the frozen ground toward the barn. In the barn, Willard was brooming floors and caught sight of Duncan climbing the stairway toward the loft. What are you intending? he called. Them cows been fed? Duncan asked. Of course they have, Willard replied. Don't need any more hay? Plenty down here. Duncan stood with his head thrust into the shadows above the ceiling beams, his body twisted sideways on the stairs, his right hand grasping the perfectly smooth oak railing polished by centuries of hands ascending and descending. Ain't been up here for a long time, he called down to Willard. Nothing's changed, Willard assured him. Nothing up there, but hey. Duncan came down. He went to the center of the barn where Willard was sweeping. I could do some brooming, he said. No need, Willard replied, continuing his work, missing the earnestness of Duncan's offer. I'm just pottering here. You might could snap the switch for the loading chains. Is that the big black one next to the door? Duncan asked, squinting with some alarm at the invisible switch. Willard set his broom against the ceiling braces. I'll attend to it, he said with resignation. He walked past Duncan between the two rows of black and white cows, stanchioned facing one another in the center of the barn. As Willard went into the milk house, Duncan reached for the abandoned broom, but he had scarcely taken it in hand when the manure-loading chains began to creak and clank, moving slowly and methodically through the gutters of the barn. Willard came back into the barn, located a shovel, and went to work loading manure onto the conveyor from a pile along the north wall. Duncan set Willard's broom back in place and went into the milk house. The machinery for washing the milking equipment and cooling the morning's milk was running. Clear water was circulating through the glass container in which the milk was filtered. Duncan could hear the two cooling paddles revolving in the stainless steel storage vat. He had been told many times never to touch the milking machine switches, but he turned the apparatus off. It was near mid-morning. A cold sun filtered weak light through the four small glass panes of the milkhouse door. The room was heated and quiet. The steady low rumble of the loading machinery was remote. Duncan settled in the wooden chair in the room's only uncluttered corner and fell asleep. He had only slept a half hour when Malcolm, coming from outside, and Willard from the barn, discovered, almost at the same time, that the washing of the milking lines had come to a halt. Neither man spoke, seeing Duncan stirring in the corner. Willard turned the manure loader off and the milking apparatus back on. Duncan did not defend himself. Makes more noise than a sawmill, he claimed, standing and waving at the hoses. There was no reply or reprimand. Sure, we had big saws, he said, 
meeting imagined objections, but that was different. Biggest fur and pine in the world, and I was the foreman. He had quickly stirred himself to almost a fever pitch. He spoke directly to Malcolm, who had managed only a few steps past the door. Willard busied himself at drawing water to wash out rags in the sink. Dad was good at cross-cutting, smooth and strong, but boys, oh boys, there was something to pay if you didn't keep your side of it. He'd jolt you with such a pull as would make your arms tear loose. Then he'd laugh and say, now I've brung you over. Likely you'll want to ride back. Willard straightened up and turned away from the sink, interested in Duncan's recollections. Dad started giving us practice at cross-cutting, he said to Malcolm. First thing in the morning, day after we was born. Dad and me saw a whole forest of logs when we was at clearing the west pasture, Duncan told his brother. Malcolm had taken the corner chair. He watched the two men standing like actors in the center of the room, seriously conveying information to one another which both had heard a thousand times. Howard was the best of us boys, Willard told Duncan, but he had the height on us. Duncan's eyes brightened. His head snapped upward. He looked with contagious astonishment at Willard as he disclosed, Dad was big. Malcolm felt the father's giant form filling the confined milk house, but Willard had become quickly disenchanted. He went back to wringing out rags. Shortly, Malcolm returned to his wood cutting, and Duncan went into the house. The kitchen range filled the room with warmth. Nora sat on a stair-stepped stool beside the table peeling potatoes and watching television. Duncan placed his outer clothes on the coat tree in the corner next to the television, then drew up a chair to look out the west window from the other end of the room. No words were exchanged at Duncan's entrance, or while he hung up his jacket and placed his chair. Once he was situated behind Nora's back near the window, she asked him, pleasantly, still watching her program and peeling potatoes, Will Willard and Malcolm be coming down for tea soon? Don't know, Duncan retorted, nearly growling. It is chilly, Nora said, so I expect they'll be coming in soon. They sat in silence, indifferent to one another and to the sounds of the television, until Willard and Malcolm came in for tea. Toast was served with the tea, and the four sat around the table with Nora on the side nearest the stove. According to the weatherman, she announced, almost secretively, we're going to have a very marked change. Duncan was alerted. He looked directly at her across the table. Is it going to rain? he asked. As a matter of fact, Duncan, Nora replied, speaking to him in the indulgent tones of a greatly burdened schoolmistress, it is. Then she began to address Willard and Malcolm more than Duncan. According to the long-range forecasts, we may have mild weather and a great deal of rain until nearly Christmas, but I have looked into the almanac and there does seem to be a disagreement. 
always is, said Willard. Still, it's bound to be a sorry winter soon or late, what with the caterpillars taking heavier fur at one end or t'other. That's a sure sign? Malcolm was curious and skeptical. Sure than most, Willard said with moderate conviction. Bees is best for telling hard weather, Duncan said. Mother kept bees, and she was always ahead of the almanac. When the bees see their breath inside the boxes, the winter'll be cold, was what she always said. Nora shrugged her shoulders at Duncan's eternal stupidity. But Willard, as always, found pleasure in hearing of his mother's whimsical way of spoofing. "'Twasn't just for the weather she'd find such expressions,' he offered. "'Willard always says,' Nora turned to Malcolm, but the words were for Duncan, "'she was a remarkable woman, especially for being able to put up with what he refers to as the likes of us.' "'She was near as good a cook as Mrs. Bastone,' Duncan asserted, "'and could she ever milk cows?' Nora tried to stay composed. Malcolm could see her discomfort and attempted to keep calm. Mrs. Bastone was a neighbor, she explained. She and her husband were childless. They lived in the farm behind Travis, where the Bernards live now. The two of them was always eating or laughing, Willard said. "'Twas a common saying that they never would quit laughing if it wasn't time to eat. Once they'd start setting out food, there was no getting away without taking on a carload. Pies and cakes and puddings such as you'd never seen, and lots of them. Carloads of pies and cakes and puddings, Duncan said with delight. They were French and fat, fatter than pigs, he added with joyful recollection. Both dead a long time, Willard said with limited regret. Heart attacks ate themselves right into their graves. It was evident that he felt the Bastones had intentionally devised their passing. Well, we'll be having plain old meat potatoes tonight, Malcolm, if you'd care to join us, Nora said lightly, trying to end the conversation. I wouldn't mind coming in for late tea, Malcolm told her. Nora was pleased. She would expect him. She got up and moved slowly, almost ponderously, around the table toward the doorway to the living room. Don't worry, I'll gradually be moving faster, she said to Willard. It's stiffness, not pain this morning, she assured him. I intend to make the upstairs bed before the unseasonal rains rush in and cripple me. <laughs> Her laugh was slight and artificial as she disappeared through the doorway. Her slow weight on the creaking stairs echoed through the kitchen. Malcolm visualized her moving methodically, alone in the upper darkness beyond the ceiling. Duncan sat motionless, his crossed arms settled on the table, staring downward at its center. I've seen this beam of light, he said, more to himself than to the others. A thick one going straight through run room to the other, whirling and running about with grain dust. He stared intently at the tabletop and spoke very slowly as if he pondered every word. But it wasn't dust. It was bees and fireflies. 
and flying ants and gnats and moon moths. The light was coming from the moths and such as was flying about. So when they was gone, there was no light. And when the light was gone, there was no bees. He lifted his head abruptly and spoke in his usual heightened voice and feverish manner, just like pulling a string and making a room go lighter dark. Willard had crossed the kitchen and was putting wood in the stove. Whilst you're about here today, he said to Duncan, you might see to the fire and bring in a few sticks from the porch. Duncan looked at him only an instant. She says it's going to rain, he told Malcolm. I wish it would, Malcolm said. I wouldn't mind a Christmas without snow. Happens sometimes, Willard said. He was at the porch door, ready to return to his chores. Duncan cocked his head toward the faint sounds coming from the floor above. She ain't never been in the loft, he said, continuing to look upward, speaking with both regret and sarcasm. Duncan's unjust remark dismayed the two men. Willard chided him. It's your bed she's making. Duncan became nearly wild. He stood up, seized his spoon, and wrapped it on the table. I don't want her touching my bed or anything what belongs to me, and I don't want her coming to visit me over at my hotel room in Sydenham. Willard shrugged his shoulders. His deep-set eyes carried both compassion and traces of a joyless smile. I don't suppose you have to worry about such a thing, he said. He walked out the porch door and went back to his chores. Malcolm had walked to the west window carrying his tea, avoiding, as best he could, Duncan's sudden outburst and Willard's attempt to manage him. As he turned away from the window, Duncan, who had seated himself again, asked, "'Is he over there with the tractor?' "'I don't see anyone,' Malcolm replied. "'Is he over there in them west rooms of the house?' Duncan's body was rigid. His eyes moved restlessly on the rim of panic. "'No, no!' Malcolm tried to calm him. Sometimes Nora goes into my rooms and straightens them a bit. You're back from school? Duncan declared, wanting confirmation. Yes, in a way, Malcolm said. What did they teach you over there? Duncan asked intently. His distress had nearly disappeared. Not a great deal, Malcolm replied. He was mildly amused at speaking an inadvertent truth about himself in the midst of Duncan's turmoil. I'll be going off in the tractor soon, Duncan said evenly. You mean to Sydenham? Who told you that? Duncan exploded. It's no secret, Malcolm said. You and Willard were talking about it only a minute ago. There ain't no stove, Duncan said. They looked together at the kitchen range. Malcolm was about to explain that the room would be centrally heated, have a thermostat, and would always be comfortable regardless of the weather, but he said nothing. Instead, he watched Duncan go to the stove and add a stick to the fire. Willard'll have a hard time keeping this fire all alone, Duncan bragged. Bet I've put a million sticks to it. He turned very deliberately and looked at the Madonna's statue, casting its aura of white and blue into the dim morning light of the kitchen. Might be no statues, he said with obvious pleasure. You can decide that, Malkin assured him. Ain't having no damn bitches in my room. 
Malcolm was putting on his jacket, ready to go back to his woodcutting. Duncan crossed to his chair at the window. He looked out at the stubbled field, still frost-laying in the grey of late morning, stretching out toward the second farmhouse. Mother was gone, he said reverently to the emptiness and cold beyond the window, and boisterously to Malcolm, who was just going out. By the time I got back from going up and down and seeing the whole world, the same afternoon the telephone call signaling Duncan's reprieve came from the home at Sydenham. No definite alternate date could be given. The wait could be long or short. Nora, in her phone calls to Alice and Doreen, said she felt fated, that she and Willard would never have the house to themselves. Alice was sympathetic, but she had heard that the first date given by a home was usually made simply to bind the agreement. Perhaps this was true. Doreen took the news more as gossip than calamity. She came straight up to tea after Nora called her. Nora was preoccupied with the fateful forces governing her life. Doreen was piqued by the failure of anything resembling honesty in the business world. After all, it's a great deal of money, she complained. You'd think they'd keep their promises. Doreen was of the opinion that nothing at all should be said to Duncan. I can't agree, Nora said. Duncan should be told that Travis won't be taking him to Sydenham when he comes home on Saturday. Doreen laughed. You know as well as I do. He doesn't know one day from the next. When Travis comes back, everything can go on as usual until you hear from the home. No, Nora said earnestly. I don't believe that would be right. It is hard to know how much Duncan really understands sometimes, but I can't think it would be right not to tell him about the change. Doreen conceded, finally, that it wouldn't hurt anything, but she supposed that it would be best for Willard to tell Duncan. Nora admitted later that evening to Malcolm that she, all along, had had some twinges of conscience about Duncan's departure and, after her first disappointment, had felt a certain relief at the postponement so much so that she had nearly told Duncan herself. It was Willard, however, who disclosed it to him just as Duncan was going upstairs to bed after supper. Your room's not to be ready at Sydenham for a while, Willard told him. Duncan straightened and looked with sober conviction at Willard from the doorway. Putting in a stove, he said. Willard and Nora both laughed a little, surprised and relieved by Duncan's reply. No, they won't do that, Willard said. Duncan looked at both of them squarely. Do you like it over there? Duncan inquired. Their feeling of relief vanished. Neither could think of a reply. Duncan turned through the doorway on his way upstairs. Later that evening, Alice visited Malcolm for the last time before Travis's return. It was from her that Malcolm first learned of Duncan's reprieve, although a little later he was caught in a lie, pretending to have heard it initially from Nora. Alice was not in a desperate mood. She apparently had reconciled herself to Travis's return, and part of her complacency, or retreat, or capitulation, obviously stemmed from the temporary reversal she saw in Duncan's fortunes. It's hard to understand, she said, how or why anything happens. A person can always think of reasons, but they never seem to amount to very much. 
It's always easy to suppose things would have been different if it weren't for the children, or if Duncan had never come home, or if I learned how to dance well (laughs) when I was a little girl, but that all ends up being nothing more than nonsense and daydreaming. She brightened suddenly. I'm tired and ashamed of coming to you weeping and wailing and looking for sympathy. I want to know what it was that brought you here and what you are doing here. You don't seem at all to be in the right place, but, she added lightly, I I can't imagine where you should be. How about Sydenham and Duncan's place? Malcolm said wryly. You two are rather alike, she said with a reflective smile. We are. Malcolm was half amused, half curious. He was refilling her coffee cup. Yes, I don't understand either one of you, she said. Oh, Malcolm was obviously a little disappointed. Well, that's not really all there is to it, she assured him, trying to explain. You're both sociable, in a way, or would like to be, but you both have secrets and want to live alone with them. I think you're right about the secrets, he said in thoughtful agreement. I don't believe, though, that either of us knows what they are. I'd call them mysteries, then, she said. Her comment reminded him that he had sometimes mistakenly taken her too lightly, simply as an unhappy lady, bored with the life of looking after children, tied to an insensitive husband. Yes, mysteries, he said, lingering on the word, Duncan has intrigued me from the beginning, he admitted. I listen to everything he says without knowing why. Sometimes he makes no sense at all, but from the very first I felt that he sees or feels or or hides from something that more ordered minds never quite grasp. I don't know whether he's a sage, a fool, a lazy intruder, or a devil, as Nora believes. He talks with you and Willard and Howard and the mailman and whoever chances by, but he only rants at Nora, Alice observed. He hates the Madonna, Malcolm said. Does that mean all women? No. No, he likes you. And his mother is a saint. There was a catch in Malcolm's throat. Is your mother dead? Alice asked softly, sensing his sorrow. Yes, A long time ago, he said. He paused, but decided to go on. It's all rather blurry in my mind. She became unbalanced when my father died in the war, but she cared for me when she could. So you've been alone a long time. Yes, he said. I tried the sea and books and different destinations, But I always saw my mother's sufferings in the eyes of derelicts and the sick and the poor. She touched his hand across the table. Both of them struggled with tears. Does Duncan's going away disturb you, she asked, trying to shift the mood at least slightly. No, not at all, he replied, recovering with her help. No, he's indestructible. He looked at her earnestly, seeking an answer. He has some secret. How can he feel immortal at 85? Because, she answered without hesitation, he knows that he belongs on the farm. That's true, he said, as if he were being schooled by her after all of his own fruitless searching. How did he find that out? I don't know, she said simply. 
She was on the verge of turning the conversation upon herself, so she stood up and went for her coat, which was draped over the sofa. I'll be going now, she said. Don't worry about me. The kids make me happy lots of times, and I like my own cooking, <laughs> as you can see. He accompanied her through the small porch to the outside door. They were struck simultaneously by the change in the weather. The temperature had risen, and the night air was sweet, tinged with a freshness on the edge of rain. They looked a moment across the dark expanse to the west at the light from the farmhouse where Alice's children were sleeping. Then she was gone. Malcolm turned off the radio, which was always played during Alice's visits, although both of them suspicioned that Nora was omniscient. He turned out the lights and sat vacantly in the dark for a long time, finally deciding that he could not go in for late tea as he had promised. He would find some excuse in the morning, but Nora tapped on his door as she sometimes did, and he found himself unwillingly in the farmhouse kitchen with her. She had news about Duncan, which was that his admittance to the home had been delayed. Malcolm feigned surprise, but even as he did, Nora remarked with a casual sternness, but I suppose Alice has already told you. Well, Malcolm was caught completely off guard. In fact, he stammered, I, 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 I did know. I realize, Nora advised him in her most charming and cutting pedagogical manner, that Alice is lonely when Travis is away. However, she should not, in my opinion, leave the children alone in the house. I don't believe that it can be entirely right for her to visit you in your rooms, unchaperoned in Travis's absence. Malcolm sat with both hands around his teacup, head lowered like a whipped schoolboy, in her most patronizing and sanctimonious tones. Nora assured him, dwelling emphatically upon his name, it's not Malcolm that I suspect any hanky-panky or anything of the kind. I really wondered whether I should say anything at all. Alice does, however, have her immediate family to rely upon. Although Malcolm was humiliated, he felt anger supplanting humiliation. All he managed, however, was a reluctant apology, agreeing that the children should not have been left alone. He went away suppressing his anger, disappointed and alienated by being distrusted and regarded as scarcely more than a stranger. He walked into the soft air of the starless, luminous night onto the roadway upon which he had come in the heat of summer to the farm. As his boots stirred the gravel in the darkness, he could feel Duncan's presence keeping eternal vigil on the porch. Along the roadway, naked trees, a few of them long dead, ancient elms, stretched great black arms into the gauze-wrapped heavens. He heard the growing rush of the creek from around the curve in the road, murmuring under the bridge, and in a moment he stood at the railing, listening to the rhythmic, changeless, swirling sounds of the stream as it leapt over the rocks. He stood on the bridge for a long time, 
discerning small tongues of froth eddy and climb on the veiled surface of the stream, feeling no inclination to either return to the farm or go on toward the village. Finally, he turned away and walked slowly back among evescent shadows along the roadway until he reached the long, winding, graveled driveway to Alice's house. He had no clear idea of visiting the house, even after he had, as if by impulse, started to move toward it. After only a few steps along the driveway, however, he moved more rapidly and resolutely in spite of rough stones and the deeper dark of the narrow path between thick rows of fir trees. The yard light of the farm had been extinguished. In the heavy atmosphere and the onset of the coming rain, only the misshapen outlines of the house, barn, and shed were visible. Malcolm found his way through the gateway to the glass-enclosed porch at the front of the house. He tried the door cautiously and found it open. His approach from the main road to the inside door of the farmhouse had been trance-like. He lifted and released the iron knocker gently, oblivious of his intentions or expectations. He heard no stirring in the house and knocked somewhat louder a second time, releasing the knocker twice. The metallic echo startled him. He glanced about at the obscure forms of furniture huddled on the porch. Afraid that he might waken the children, he knocked warily upon the doorframe. Still silence. He repeated his knocking, prolonging and augmenting it as much as he dared. There was no stirring in the house. Blindly, he made his way down the porch steps and through the front gate. He circled the house and began to cross the wide field lying between the two farmhouses. Through stubble and the rutted soil, dampened by the rain and oppressed by the darkness, he made his way back to the welcome prison of his unlit rooms. In the small and quiet hours, rain began to fall steadily, softly, upon the rooftops of the village houses and the township farms. For a long time, before its muted sounds began, Malcolm lay awake in turmoil, wondering if it was mainly loneliness or childish rebellion at Nora's insinuations that had driven him to act so unaccountably. He suspected that his knocking had been heard, and it troubled him that he had either frightened Alice or she had guessed who was at the door. Though he was unused to anger, Nora's insinuations vexed and agitated him. Duncan's rancor toward her was mirrored in his mind. He tossed on his pillow, seeing himself walking through the dark, standing on the bridge, knocking at the farmhouse door, hearing the echo of the stream and the knocker and the tapping of the rain and Nora's voice mellow with sarcasm. He magnified the life of Duncan into centuries in the kitchen, sitting at the table, putting a few sticks on the fire, gazing, hour after hour, age after age, out of the narrow windows to the east and west, engrossed by an abiding fascination with time's secrets. Strident voices from the kitchen rose and clashed like metal fragments swirling in the sea. White howling froth churned in the basin underneath the mirror. Cruel earthquake 
hurled a stone and shattered the Madonna. She lay in broken faces on the floor. <laughs>